All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you here from in New York City on the 18th day of 2018. I should mention to you that this will be the last live show of this year since Christmas and New Year's Day both fall on Tuesdays the day that this show airs. Uh, As such, the next live show that you will be listening to will take place on January 8th, 2019. Uh, I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. We also like to invite you to keep your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises coming along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number for taylor at gmail.com. We'd also like to uh, suggest you uh, follow me on Twitter, and you can do that. My handle, uh, Twitter, Twitter handle is jtaylormedia. I have become quite a bit more active on Twitter, and uh, you might want to keep up with some of my thoughts on uh, the contents of this show as well as my newsletter. I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Today's sponsors are RN Resources, Novo Resources, Sandstorm Gold, Triumph Gold, Gold Mining Inc., Uranium Energy, and Klondike Gold Corp. I've titled today's show, Can Gold Shares Rebound in 2019? Dan Oliver, Michael Oliver, and Dr. Quentin Henning are my guests this week. 2018 has been a miserable year for the gold mining shares. From, uh, from his structure and momentum perspective, Michael Oliver suggests that a tectonic shift is underway for stocks and bonds heading lower, and the potential for a dramatic rise in precious metals maybe in store for 2019, uh, as well as uh, the companies that mine those metals. Private hedge fund manager Dan Oliver, who invests in gold mining shares, views the market from a fundamental perspective. He is cautiously optimistic about the gold share markets in 2019. He thinks, he believes, he hopes, he says, that we're headed much higher. Uh, But those of us who have been optimistic in the past have been burnt many times So we are, understandably, somewhat cautious. One of the most unusual and challenging gold deposits ever discovered is Novo Resources' Karatha discovery in Western Australia. The deposit, which Dr. Henning believes originated in a similar manner to the Great Whitwaters-Ran gold deposit of South Africa, is characterized by an extreme nugget condition that renders usual exploration and development techniques ineffective. An interview I did with Dr. Henning this past Saturday will be aired in the second segment of today's show, right after our first commercial break. Dr. Henning will explain how he plans to overcome extreme challenges in quest of what he believes can be an exceptionally large and profitable 
gold mining operation. And it is my understanding Novo Resources will likely release assays from a 170-ton bulk sample that was mined from the Edgina target in Western Australia. That press release should be forthcoming later this week, most likely, I'm told, on Thursday. Dan Oliver will be with me uh, during the second half of today's show. But I'm very pleased to tell you the other Oliver from another mother, the Oliver we know best on this show, Michael Oliver, is with me right now. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you. Uh, and I, I must say that you put out a very interesting, you know, most of your, even though you're technical, uh, the way you describe the technicals are interesting. It's it's fun reading anyway, even if even if you didn't get into the technicals. So you headed up today's uh, today's missive that you put out before the market opened this morning, Battlefield Notes. And uh, there you discuss the S&P 500 to a lesser extent, quite extensive discussion of the S&P 500 and to a lesser extent, the VIX, T-bonds, and gold. Would you care to share some of those thoughts with our listeners? Where do you think those, those major tectonic markets are moving uh, next year? And maybe just give us a sense of where you think we might be, what levels we might be looking at next year at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the stock market, the developed stock markets of the world, not the emerging, uh, were the last to change direction. Uh, it began more obviously in Europe in terms of our technical work, that is, uh, momentum technical work. Uh, Japan and the U.S. is now showing uh, clear signs that it's over. Uh, we think the top is in, circle it's done. The issue then becomes... What's the nature, duration of the decline? Is it slow and laborious? Uh, is it layered? Or is there a collapse somewhere, perhaps at the beginning or at the end? Remember in 2008, there was an end collapse. In yeah. 1929, it was a beginning collapse, and then came the bear market. Um, we think right now that this, we've just taken out the low of the year, of course, you know, the yesterday, and again today, the February low, uh, by, by a few points on the S&P. Uh, we think the next support's probably 2,400 area, which is 6 or so percent below the market. No big deal. But that's a key area because if you don't hold it, there's risk of a crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we base that on our analysis of annual momentum of the S&P, which is distinctly different now than it was in 1929 and in 1987. Though I, I know people like to go back and examine those as, you know, crash uh, templates and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in worse condition because our annual momentum structure in the S&P is so well defined as a, as a floor, well, you know, if you draw a horizontal line under the momentum action, that goes back to 2011 and 2016. Those lows were the same on annual momentum, not in price, but on momentum. Mm-hmm. If we go through 2400 by much, we're going to blow those lows out on a relative basis, in which case we open the entire, there's a void below us. So, while we think the drop right now is likely to go to the 2400 level, then comes the question, do we hold near there? Uh, I have a, a somewhat of a bias that we don't. Mm-hmm. We don't even put up the, the noble struggle of a month or two rally, for example. Now, all the rallies we've had, what, of the last few months, would have been multiple days, not weeks, if you go back and look at them. Uh, no. We think it's critical that they hold the 2400 level if they want to live for another month and a half or so on the upside before they then enter the next phase of the bear market, or they don't hold that. Now, that's a key level. Why? Look what's happened to the T-bond market. It's exploded in the last several weeks, and I think that is a function 
of shifting of money out of stocks, developed market world, into a cash equivalent that yields something. You yeah. can't get a yield out of Germany. You get negative yield out of Japan. So you're left with only one thing, U.S. government bonds. Right. It's, it's effectively a cash equivalent, and they're rushing into it. And I think it's a panic rush. Smart money saying, I'm one out of the stock market. I don't quite know what's going on. Now, the other beneficiary of this, if you'll look at it, and I know there's a lot of smoke on the financial news channels about commodities going down, oil and copper, for example. That's fine. We expected that. They had had a very good recovery from their 2016 lows and were due for this decline. But gold, all during that time, has been going up. Ever since the S&P made its eye in September and has turned down, gold has been advancing month by month, despite firmness in the dollar, which is masking the gold advance. We mm-hmm. think gold has crossed enough hurdles now to where it can start to behave shortly like the T-bonds have behaved, mainly by that I mean a more electronic upside instead of gradual arm wrestling upside, uh, more volatile on the upside. And I think we're at the edge of that, that movement. I also think that the gold miners are a better place to be than gold. Um, historically, this is true. If they're a better place to be on the downside when the gold is in a bear, if you're short, and if you're long, they're a better place to be than gold on the upside. And I think they're about to shift clearly into that mode. And I think they're doing it, in fact, over the last several weeks. If you look at the percentage gain we've had in the GDX, for example, versus the percentage gain in gold. Um, so I, I, I think that the gold mining sector is probably one of the few sectors of stock investment in the world that offers great return and very low risk at this point in time. So 2019, uh, we're just about out of time here, Mike. Uh, 2019 should be a banner year for gold shares. Do I hear you saying that? I think that? that if gold does what I think it's going to do, which is to take out five years worth of highs probably within the next month or two, I think GDX could easily be over 30, and there's a breakout structure up there if it ever touches 32. In other words, we're right now at 21 plus. Just to get to the highs of 2016, which I think could be achieved fairly quickly, that's almost a 50% move. All right. All right. And so that's the place to be. All right, Michael. We'll have to leave it go at that. We are out of time. Thank you so much uh, for all you've uh, shared with us this year. I wish you a a happy new year, and uh, we'll look to talk to you again on January 8th if you're available. Thank you so much for being with us. It's going to be a fun year. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Michael. Well, folks, don't go away because uh, Dr. Quentin Henning will be with us at the Novo Resources uh, CEO. He'll talk to us about what's going on in their project in Western Australia. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Quentin Henning. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Turning Hard Times into Good Times is brought to you in part by Sandstorm Gold Royalties. 
Sandstorm Gold Royalties is a different kind of gold company. They purchase royalties on select mining operations and receive a percentage of the revenue in return. Sandstorm now has a portfolio of over 185 gold royalties around the world. See how gold royalties differ from other gold mining investments at sandstormgold.com. That's sandstormgold.com. Sandstorm Gold Royalties trades on the TSX as SSL and the NYSE as SAND. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Dr. Quentin Henning, the President and Chairman of Novo Resources. Thanks for joining me again, Dr. Henning. Thank you, Jay. Um, the, uh, the project that you're working on is very unique, and, you know, I had just recently um, was talking to an analyst who's a pretty well-known fellow who's very accomplished and has been around for quite a while, very experienced guy, and he says, I just can't understand why Dr. Henning isn't drilling that target down there uh, at um, uh, in Western Australia, the uh, Pilbaro targets that he has. So explain real quickly, if you can, why it is, Quentin, that you just can't drill this like you would a normal project. Even if you put the drill core, even if you put the drills closely together, it just doesn't work. Yeah, sure. That's uh, Anybody that's followed Novo's story and, and what we're doing here in Australia understands that this is a very nuggety deposit. The gold occurs as nuggets in the matrix of these conglomerate deposits. And, you know, they're, they're randomly distributed through the, the conglomerate. So the odds of hitting uh, gold, you know, for grade purposes at least, uh, is, is pretty slim. We can drill for geology, but we, we have to bulk sample to get uh, estimated grade. All right. Uh, you seem to be focusing now on, uh, on a new target that you picked up, Agena. But I, I also, before we get to that, I'd like to ask you about the first project that you worked on at Beaton's Creek. I think you did do some drilling. You, com- you combined drilling and bulk sampling there, I believe, and you came up with a resource. It looks pretty attractive to me. There's 667,000 ounces, pit-constrained, I believe, with uh, grades of, what is it, 2.3 or something like that, grams per ton. Um, did you, so you were able to use both drilling and, I think, drilling and bulk sampling to pull that together, right? We did. Uh, you know, that was the first deposit we tackled here in Australia. Uh, we learned, you know, how to deal with coarse gold. Not quite as coarse as Carruth or, or Edgina, but it, it is coarse gold. Uh, we, we revised our resource, basically upgraded it based on some more work that we did last year. Uh, but we're also uh, going to... to do a further upgrade of that resource shortly. I would say by maybe February of next year, uh, the drilling and this would be core drilling and bulk sampling that we've done recently uh, should augment that resource. We're targeting, uh, you know, I say at least a million ounces there. 
Okay, a million ounces, and then that might justify the capital expenditure and so forth. But all I'm saying is I'm looking at some of the you've, – you've recently put out a, a technical report that indicates to me at least that your cost, your operating cost, ought to be pretty modest. And, you know, I don't know of too many open pit targets that are grading 2.3 to 2, 2.6 grams per ton. Uh, with low stripping ratios and so forth. So anyway, that's another t- topic for another day, Beaton's Creek. I know your primary fo- focus right now is on Edgina. Uh, talk to us about Edgina and what makes that special and why you've decided to focus on Edgina after having spent the last year or so uh, focused heavily on Caratha. But what's special about Edgina and, and what's going on there right now? Yeah, Edgina is really an extension of the Caratha Gold Project. It's on the east side of the, the tenement area. Um, Edgina is basically the, the the gold is derived from the same conglomerates that we have at Comet. Well, it's not that we're we're shifting focus; it's that we're you know expanding and and uh, working in this new area. Uh, we have a lot of work going on at Comet. Well, as you you remember, we're doing ore sorting testing and, and other things right now. But at Edgina, uh, we wanted to get some work done here late this year to get some you know basic fundamental answers about. The deposits. Uh, first of all, we've got conglomerate. Like I said, we've got uh, similar conglomerates that come at well. But more interestingly, there's a large flat area we call the terrace. Uh, it's basically a, 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 an erosional surface, a very, very flat surface that's formed over millions of years. As these conglomerates have eroded back, the gold in them has been redistributed into a, a gravel horizon, a, gra- a lag gravel horizon that's about a meter or two thick. And it sits right at surface. So right now we're bulk sampling. In fact, I've been at Edgina over the past couple of days. And we're just about done uh, doing the bulk sample work. And we will be able to tell the market what we found here shortly. It's a very, very interesting project. Uh, the gold, I've been panning the gold as it, you know, the concentrates come out of the IGR plant. And, uh, you know, my opinion is the gold is clearly derived from weathering of the, the nearby conglomerate. So it's, it's quite exciting to think. It's like Mother Nature pre-milled the deposit for us. Ah. So you talked in your December 13th press release about 170-ton bulk samples. Is that what you're talking about from Edgen? And, and uh, you're suggesting that we may be getting some assays from that fairly soon, Quentin? That's correct, yes. So um, just so people know, we are treating the, the sample through our own IDR 3000 test plant. This is the same plant we used at Beaton's Creek a couple of years ago. It works fantastic. It's been performing excellent. Uh, we've put the 170 ton through. We just finished today. Uh, we're, we're treating the concentrates, panning them down. In fact, I've, I've been involved with that. And I would say uh, sometime in the next few days, maybe a week or so, we should be able to talk about uh, the, the grade that we're seeing from that. Uh, you know, it is coarse gold. It's just like the, the gold that you see at Comet Well, all right? But, uh, but again, it's been eroded, and it's loose. The nuggets are loose in this gravel material. All right. Very exciting. I think this result should give everyone a, a taste for what we're dealing with. And you expect to learn some things, I guess, from this bulk sample that might help you set up a protocol for, uh, for, for, um, for, for sampling and, and producing in the future? That's right. So... This sample, uh, you know, we could have done two tons or we could have done five tons if we did a comet well, but we have the luxury here of digging as much as we want. So we, we're doing, say, you know, 150 or 200 ton samples to get a better estimate of grade, and I think they, they work fantastic. So basically we've, we've already established now the protocols for sampling and treating this material, 
And once the rainy season ends next year, say, you know, February or March, we'll be able to jump in here and start uh, sampling systematically across the Edgina uh, mining leases. Now, in your uh, in your December 13th press release, you also talked about three smaller samples weighing about 20 tons each. They were collected for metallurgical test work. Are you looking at the possibility of this separation technology that you talked about over at Caratha? That is absolutely correct. You know, one of the great benefits of coarse gold is that it is reasonably easy to treat. You can use gravity techniques, but we also have found that this ore sorting, this uh, machine that uh, scans rocks or, you know, particles and and identifies those with gold, you know, and then flicks them off uh, using air jets. This thing is up and coming. It will revolutionize the mining industry, and, and we're looking at how we can apply it to the, the projects, both the Comet Well and Edgina. Uh, but we're also looking at other techniques, too. There's several options we might have to treat this material. It's, it's coarse, it's free, uh, you know, easy to recover, so there's definitely multiple options we're looking at. And I'm imagining this has uh, uh, potentially a very significant impact on the economics of a project if you can get rid of non-gold-bearing rock. I mean, I, I watched you at Caratha. You had, uh, uh, there's a video that people can watch that shows how this thing works. And I would say, you know, every now and then a rock would get hurled into a bin that was a little further away. And I'm assuming that those rocks that were, those few that were separated, were the ones that are that are gold bearing. Is that the idea? That's correct, and we should have data to support that very, very shortly. We are assaying the concentrate, and those should be ready within a few days. Um, the 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 tailings, basically the rock that did not get picked, you know, by the machine, that has to be assayed too sure. to understand effectiveness. But we'll get those assays sometime early next year. And it seems to me the reason, one of the reasons, it would be economically important is because. Uh, you are out in the middle of the desert, out sort of away from where, I guess you probably don't have power lines. Uh, you don't have cheap electricity there, right? Or am I right about that? And if, if so, then you'd have to use no, diesel. Yeah, actually, it's uh, just the opposite. The oh. iron, industry, iron mining industry is not too far south of us. And the, the you know power production capacity of the, the region is actually quite good. We, there's lots of offshore natural gas. Uh, there's power stations. They they you know burn natural gas. They produce power for the iron ore mines, and all those transmission lines basically go right straight across uh, these areas that we're working. Oh, that's fantastic! I, thanks for for telling me that. I don't know why I wasn't aware of that, but you know, even so, if you can get rid of the non-gold bearing rock and not have to move that through a mill, it's obviously a, a big advantage. So, and it's so, fantastic. Yeah, and and um, so. The twenty-ton sample, we, you, you figure we'll start getting some some assays on that as well. Those uh, those smaller bulk samples that you're using. Yeah, yeah just so people know that the the sample that we're treating right now, the you know 160 to 170 ton sample that we, we've just finished, that will give us uh, a good number. The the other samples, the twenty tonners, uh, were taken right next to this sample, and and they're more for metallurgical purposes, but. Uh, so it's not, they're not, like the grade will be settled by the 170-ton sample, in my view. Uh, the, those samples will just give us some data on how we can treat this material. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that, uh, to, the, to the assays from the 170-ton sample, and I, I guess what you're telling us is it could come even before the new year, possibly? 
Yes, good. Very well. In fact, that's my goal here. If we're, we're working frantically at the moment. It's very hot. It's been, uh, you know, up, up towards 120 degrees over the past couple of weeks, but we've, uh, we, we pulled it off and I think we'll be able to tell the market what's, uh, what's in this material. All right. Well, you know, just sort of in summing up, uh, Quentin, your vision of how the Whitwaters Rand deposit was formed always fascinated me. It was one of the reasons that I really got excited and interested in what you were doing down there. Um, and you had this vision, that, uh, and I think you still do, of a very vast basin that is uh, that is hosting gold mineralization, uh, and that uh, as you get down deeper into the basin, the characteristics of the gold might change. At least that's what I think I heard you say in the past. Do you see the possibility of, of I mean, are you still focused at all in the future and in your mindset? Are you looking at something deeper down in the basin? I mean, it seems obvious to me the reason you're focusing on uh, the near shore stuff, the, the shoreline uh, material uh, that seems to be, you know, very nuggeting, as you, as you say, that that's the obvious place to look first. You don't start to spend a lot of time and money going, you know, what, hundreds of meters down if you can get it right on surface, right? But do you, my question is this, do you still see prospects of gold mineralization in deeper in the basin? And and maybe explain, because I've had some people complaining that you haven't done any exploration down deep. Could you just sort of sum up your ideas on, on that? Yeah, sure. Look, first of all, to, to put the size of the system in perspective, you know, we're talking about something that underlies an area of, of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of square kilometers. So it's it's a very, very large basin. We are basically nibbling around the edge of it at this time. Uh, there's many occurrences of gold that have been found. You know, this gold rush that was sparked by, by Nova's first work at Comet Well uh, has turned up many occurrences. You know, I, was, I visited some neighboring properties with their geologists recently, and they're seeing the same things we are. So it's very encouraging to see uh, gold and similar gold derived from multiple outcrops, many outcrops along strike. And, you know, it, it also points to the fact that there's likelihood that this continues into the basin there. You know, geologically, it wouldn't make sense to have it all around the rim and then not see it continue into the basin. But then it becomes a matter of economics. As you say, uh, why are we going to go out and drill, you know, 500-meter holes when we have, uh, you know, gold sticking out of the ground, say at Edgina? Yeah, that uh, is is easy and, and cheaper to to tackle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, is there still a sense in your mind that there that there may be more continuity and less nuggeting, or or maybe the sort of reefs that we're seeing in South Africa uh, deeper in the basin? Because I know the, early on you talked about the high energy part of the basin, which would be near the shoreline, and that would make some sense. It it, it seems in my mind of not having uh, this sort of con- continuous gold mineralization where you might have things that are knocked apart and, and whipped around. Okay, I'm going to give you a, 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 what might sound like a funny answer, but uh, we already see some evidence that there is a change in the system uh, because at Edgina, for example, there's erosion that cuts back into the basin quite a ways. In other words, uh-huh. we get a little peek at what's going on, and I would say... Give us about six, six, nine months, something like that, and we'll we'll start to tell you in great detail what what's going on out there. A little more down in the basin. All right. Well, yep. so in so in summing up here, then of uh, the drivers that investors should be looking forward to, I guess starting with the 170 uh, ton bulk sample, and, and what else? You know, really, uh, th- that news release we put out a couple of days ago, late late last week, 
outlines everything in the short term. So we've got the Tom sorting at uh, Comet Well, for example, that, that data should be forthwith. The uh, mineralization report will be out early next year. Uh, we're moving that everything forward just like we've told the market. And then at Engina, I think you're going to see more activity. Uh, just my gut says, uh, based on what we're seeing there, this is an important project for us. Uh, and I think you'll see components of test mining, things like that, in 2019. Beaton's Creek, really interesting. You know, I think we can get the resource. Uh, again, the target uh, a million ounces is achievable in my view. Uh, we should be able to publish that sometime around February or March. You know, so every we're hitting on all cylinders right now. And, and, you know, in spite of the stock price being down, um, we are seeing the, the, the fruits coming in from all this work we've done in these conglomerates. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Quentin, for being with us once again. It's always fascinating to watch uh, this very unusual story unfold, and um, I look forward to catching up with you again in a couple of months from now. All the best. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Dan Oliver. He's the founder and manager of Mermican Capital. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Gold Mining Inc., ticker symbol G-O-L-D on the TSX and G-L-D-L-F on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Dan Oliver. Uh, he's with me once again. He is the founder and manager of, and director of Mermican Capital, LLC. Thank you, Dan, for joining me again. 
Thanks for having me. You know, it's. Um, I was really looking over your October 11th article titled Heads or Tails You Lose, and I thought it might be great to start out today with that, uh, just going over that, uh, the, the basic idea behind that essay. I really want to talk to you about whether or not you think we can have a bounce back in the gold share markets uh, in 2019, and uh, if so, why? Um, but before we get to that, I think very appropriate, uh, this article in terms of where we're at now in the gold market, we've had a 10-year bull market. The equity markets are certainly getting long in the tooth by historical standards. Uh, and yet, uh, the equity markets, of course, aren't the most important markets. I think the most important markets are the debt markets. And the debt markets, to me, look even more stretched, perhaps, than the equity markets. But uh, could you start out, perhaps, by talking a little bit about martingale risk, which you pointed out in that article, Heads or Tails You Lose?, Talk to us about Martingale risk and then why that might be relevant to uh, where the equity markets and the debt markets are today. Yeah, so what, what a Martingale risk is, is it's a bet where the chances of success are very, very, very high, uh, but the prize for winning is very low. And conversely, the, the chances for loss is very low, but but what you lose when, when you do lose is very, very high. And so... It, it, what it does is people who take Martindale risk, especially investment uh, advisors, they, they appear to be geniuses, right? If, if my business is selling asteroid insurance and I collect premiums all day long, it's like I'm, I'm getting this money, this, this constant flow of income, the, the steady gains. I look like a, like a genius until, of course, the asteroid hits and then I get wiped out. Uh, actually, in that case, no one's around to collect. And, and it's not a bad analogy because that's essentially what AIG was doing. In the, in the housing market, right? They were selling insurance against a housing crash, and so they were they were getting steady income. Uh, and so each little bet, with, with the, the chances of it going sour is very very low because we were in a credit we're, uh, a credit bubble and housing prices were going up. And and you know uh, housing prices, Bernanke told us, had never gone down nationwide. So what, you know what a what a safe wonderful bet. Of course, until housing did crash, and they had enormous losses. Uh, wiping out all their gains, and of course, as we all know, they needed a, a bailout from the Fed. And, and, and the point is that professional investors can use Martindale risk to to snooker investors into thinking that they're geniuses. And, and, and to your point, the debt markets, because I think it's a good a good thing to talk about right now, mm-hmm. uh, is is uh, the, the the hottest thing in the debt markets in this cycle is not mortgage bonds uh, and mortgage backed securities; it's it's uh, business loans. Uh-huh. So, so as you know, companies have been borrowing lots of money at very, very low interest rates to go buy back their shares. And the reason they do this is because the executives uh, have stock options. <laughs> so if they buy their shares back, they push the share price up and they get rich personally. So this is why they do it. But but they make their their uh, their their capital structure more brittle. But then you ask, well, who who lends the money to these guys? I mean, who, who's who's actually subsidizing this? And again. Right. If it's not your money, right? If you're an agent and you're lending someone else's money, like a pension fund's money or someone else's money, as long as it performs, you get a big bonus. Mm-hmm. And so, as long as things can work out for not 20 years, maybe, but but two or three or four years, and you get your bonus, you don't really care what happens after that. I, I, I'm not aware of any one of AIG who had to turn over their personal fortunes, yeah. turn their personal fortunes from from their mal malfeasance that they did. Mm-hmm. The, the the biggest part, or the, I should say, the sexiest part of the debt markets over the last few years has been called something called levered loans. Hmm. So, you know, I, well, I thought loans were leveraged. So what's a levered loan? What, what, what a levered loan is, is it's a loan to a company that already has a debt burden of above six times EBITDA, right? So Ooh, what you're talking about yeah. companies already has too many loans and now we're going to get more loans, right? Wow. So, so as you can imagine, the, the interest rate 
on the, on levered loans are very very high, right? Because they're super risky. So again, this is Bernanke even announced the whole point of QE was to push people out of treasury bonds and into the stock market, into corporate debt, other other more risky things. That's why he did it to revive the economy, quote unquote. Well, of course, when, when that happened, when Guys and treasuries had to buy corporate bonds. People in the corporate bond market got pushed out, had to sell, and they had to buy something more riskier to maintain their yields. And, they, and they, so this is this is why this market exists because they have pushed investors into this super high risk uh, market. What what uh, and what's scary about this is uh, until about six months ago, the OCC, the the Office of the Control of the Currency, had had a rule that prevented banks from engaging this activity. Uh, and, and they did it because they thought it was too risky for banks to do it. So who was doing it? Well, this is the shell game. The, the banks would lend money to third-party operators, and the third parties would lend, lend these money out. So, so the hmm. bank, bank credit was still funding it just through a third person, through party. Wow. And so the banks would say, hey, look, we don't have any of these levered loans in our balance sheet. Aren't we great? And we're just running around saying how strong the banks are because their balance sheet looks so great. Well, well, yeah, they don't have the levered loans. They, they have the loans to the people making the levered loans. So it's not quite as risky. There's some capital buffer in those in those third-party lend, non-bank lenders, but, but they still ultimately are funding this thing and, and bear the risk. It gets a lot crazier, Jay, because what happened was two things. First of all, six months ago, the OCC withdrew its guidance. So right at the top of the market, oh. where, where this stuff is super crazy, uh, the banks you know, jumped into this market. Uh, actually, three things. That's number one. Now, number two is uh, loans come with covenants. And, and the right. function of a covenant is like, like an income covenant. If, if, you're in, if, if the company's income goes below a certain percentage of its debt, uh, it's an event of default. And the banks can run in. And seize the collateral and sell it. And right. the reason the reason covenants exist is because if you're an executive or an owner of, of a company, and you reach the point of insolvency, what that means is you haven't been shut down yet. You just you owe more money than than you have, right? So you don't. You, so your your equity value is zero at this point. So you know what, what is your natural incentive to do? Well, take the whole thing, go to Vegas, and put it on red. Right. In other words, in other words t- take take a big bet, right? And if it goes red, you double the money. And, and you get rich the equity guy because you go the upside. If it, yeah. if it lands on black, well, it's not your money anyway. The the bank takes a loss. And so the point of the covenant is is to prevent management teams from doing that, right? It's saying, yeah. like, once you hit a certain point, we know you're going to turn into rank speculators. We don't want you to be gambling our money, right? And, and so we're going to shut you down. Well, because of the hot debt markets, companies are able to negotiate better and better terms. And the percentage of levered loans – that are covenant lights, are called. They don't have mm-hmm. these covenant protections. Right. It's 80, 80% now. It's 80%. Wow. Wow. So what that means is that when things start going south, uh, uh, the, the managers, the, the banks can't shut them down. So the managers can keep dialing up the risk to try to save their own skins while they're betting with someone else's money, the bank's money or, or, or whoever it is that engages in these things. Mm-hmm. So, so, so you've got this, this super toxic uh, a bunch of loans, and it gets worse. Because of course, what the banks do, what, what what banks do, and also people like KKR and Blackstone, is they take pools of these levered loans and they put them into securitized uh, instruments, just like housing. They yeah. say, hey, look, well, you know, maybe one company might 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 blow up, but there's no way that all of them can blow up at the same time. Even though they're super risky, the idea is if we've got a pool of them, then then the top tranches, the, the guys who get paid off first, uh, can't lose, right? So they get a triple A rated. Uh, security based on a pool of these crazy levered covenant light levered loans. Right? So I know it, it's, it's a sort of a complicated step to follow. But then it gets worse than this, even worse. 
And then as I've been told by two people who are in this market, I haven't read this anywhere, but I've been told by two people who mm-hmm. actually operate them, mm-hmm. that the latest innovation of this thing in the last couple of years is that the so-called BP. So when you when you set up a securization structure, as, as you probably know, Jay, you, you put mm-hmm. a bunch of debt into a structure. But by definition, the APs gets that paid out first. You say, well, mm-hmm. they're not all sure. at a fault. So they, and then the last guy is called the BPs, and he takes the most risk and he gets the most return. So if everyone pays back, he makes a ton of money. If people default, he takes a hit first. Well, the, the, it, after the financial crisis, the law, the rules were changed. So, so such that the issuer, the bank or KKR, whoever it is, has to keep the BPs. They were saying, hey, well, you've got to keep some of this risk on your balance sheet mm-hmm. uh, so you don't make crazy loans. Well, what they did was they you know, recently, they, they structured these things such that the BPs has the right to sweep out dividends of excess cash flow from the company. Mm. Wow. Let's think about this. So as, as long as the company is doing well, the BPs gets all the cash. So they get their capital back through, mm. through cash flows. And once it blows up, right, well, there's no collateral. There's not going to be any collateral left. Because again, you can't shut these things down because they don't have covenants, and and the and the and the operators, the management is going to keep betting and keep betting, and keep betting more and more aggressively until it's all gone. Uh, and and so and then you ask yourself, well, who owns this stuff? And again, it's people like European pension funds who don't, who can't speak English and haven't read the mm-hmm. the fine, haven't read, hired the right lawyers, mm-hmm. or anyone looking for AAA or some pension fund in the U.S. You got to buy AAA to paper. Treasury yields so little; these things yield more. So, well, it's AAA rated. I'll get it, right? Just like housing. Well, yeah. no. I mean, it, it's backed by a pool of things that, and this is the key point: is it, it is correlated, right? When you start dialing up interest rates. What happens is that these things become really hard to roll. Your levered loan might have a term of only two, three, or four years, mm-hmm. and so term has now you get to roll it. So maybe your last interest rate was 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 I don't know six or seven percent, and yep. it says okay, if you want to take out it today, it's going to be ten percent. Whoa! Well, now I can't afford that. Yeah. So so let, let's so so that's sort of a macro market. Uh, a problem uh, that that you know that, that the authorities have allowed the structure to to uh, to exist and and I let just run through a quick example or two of how this plays out in the real world and that is looking at companies like GE and GM okay. right so we all, we all know that or, or I, mean, I, I presume most of your listeners understand the basics of Austrian business cycle theory so yes. the banks run out they create all this credit they they push uh, pr- asset prices higher, which pushes discount rates lower, right? And when you have mm-hmm. a long-term cash flow like a ship or a building, or the, it, 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 the, the long-term cash flow is the more influenced it is by changes in discount rates. And that's mm-hmm. why sure. every bubble results in too much building of real estate and ships and airplanes and airports, all mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So, so, so rates go down. What happens is you stimulate demand for things like cars and, and jet engines and locomotives and power plants. In other words, the, the products that companies like GM and GE produce. Now, when you're talking about big capital projects like that, uh, products, there are very few producers. And, and so what happens is that people start bigger on these things, and so the prices go through the roof, and so these companies make huge amounts of cash flow, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time that their cost of capital is falling, because yeah. how do they fund themselves in the debt market, right? Right. It's just, this is great. So the record goes crazy because their their costs are going down, their their cash is going up, and then the management team takes the money, the cash, and buy back their shares. So the <laughs> number of shares are shrinking. I mean, that's why these big, huge companies do incredibly well. 
But now let's put that in reverse, mm-hmm. right? So let's say so now the Fed is jacking rates higher. And so what happens is come like GE is, well, all of a sudden the demand for these super long-term capital items like locomotives and, and generators collapses, right? So they got all the sort of capacity that they built to to satisfy the, the earlier demand. Now all of a sudden they've got no pricing power at all because no one wants these things. Yep. At, the, at the very same time, that their cost of capital is going shooting higher because they borrowed this debt, not just to fund the business, but to fund the share buybacks. So, so GE was, you know, borrowing money to buy back their share in the, in, in the high twenties, uh, you know, of the stock share price. And now mm-hmm. it's in the six, and now it's in the in the in the, in the single digits. Yeah, right. But they still have the debt. The debt's still they there. They still have the debt. That's the point. And, and, mm-hmm. and what's and worse, it's not just the Fed, right? Because what's happened now is that. Everyone looks at a company like GE and they say, whoa, you know, I don't run this company money. So, so their cost of capital goes through the roof and all of a sudden they can't run their business. And, and people I talk to think it's an open question whether the company will survive or not. Um, and, and, you know, GM is, it's not as extreme, but again, the same thing happens. You know, the, the demand for cars. Uh, creators will all of a sudden when they can't offer zero percent financing, uh, they actually got to they got to borrow the money at a cost. They got to charge the consumer that cost, and so the the uh, the, the free rides going their way. At the same time, their cost cap is going up, and so what do they do? They shut a plant. They shut their plants down. And mm-hmm. what happens is all the employees in that plant who maybe were making good wages and maybe they took out loans because they had to to buy houses because houses have gone up so much in price. You can't buy a house in cash. you got to take a huge mortgage. So mm-hmm. not necessarily being responsible. They were just being realistic. Uh, and they had the same thing with their car, same thing with their college education for their, yeah. for their kids. So they're, they're swimming in debt. And all of a sudden now, uh, again, it, rates have gone up and their job went away. <laughs> right. And so... And so this is what the Fed has done. The, the, the bubble infects not just businesses, but people's lives and, and, and their dreams and everything else. And, and, they, and then they dial the rates up. And, I mean, you know, I don't have a huge high opinion of Trump's intellectual abilities. I think he's a very cunning, oh. cunning fellow. But he understands that rising rates is, is going to kill this economy and this market. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, if they don't raise rates, you've got other problems, i.e., yep. more of your capital is stuck in malinvestments. You wind up in, in huge amounts of inflation, of hyperinflation. So, I mean, you know, the, this, this is the point. This is what Mises wrote about, you know, decades ago, which was that once you get to this position, you, your choices are only you keep printing money into hyperinflation or you stop printing the money and you get a huge crash. And, and that's precisely where we are. But I, yep. I, I hope this, this conversation, this presentation has, has, has helped sort of identify exactly where the, how the structure has been, has been created and why it's so vulnerable and just how bad it can be, right? It's not necessarily that GE's uh, assets are down 90% in value, right? Mm-hmm. The assets are very different. The equity gets what's left over after the debt gets paid. And right. so you could have a situation where the assets go down by only half. But your equity goes down with ninety five percent because right. you're so, much so levered, too much leverage. It's so well, I think, uh, yeah, Dan, I think you've really the market can. I mean, people don't understand this. The the S and P five hundred. Everyone was playing this game to some extent or other, and so this is how you're getting ninety percent decline in in the broader markets, right? It's not because uh, uh, the world ends and the economy stops. It's not like because GDP plunges by ninety percent. It's because all these companies have levered themselves up so much that the equity in them is very, very vulnerable. And I think people really, really seem to understand that that's how this system works. All right. Well, that's, uh, I think, heads, heads or tails you lose. I, I think uh, you've just explained that very well in real terms. And, and what is, you know, Dan, as, as you were talking, the only thing I could think of is orgy. 
it's like a financial orgy and everybody's having a party until it ends and then it's and then it's a hellish scenario and we saw that in 2008 so do you see something of a similar nature unwinding again no, I don't, Jay. I think it's going to be much, much worse. I think it's going to be worse because the, the debt levels are higher than they were in 2008. Remember, 2008 was a debt problem. There was too much debt in 2007, and they solved it by adding more and more debt. So the whole world, it's not just the U.S., it's the whole world. I think it's going to be worse this time than it was in 2008. It won't just be housing. It'll be, it'll be businesses at large and, and housing, too, of course. Um, that, that has its own uh, – the structures of there have gotten pretty pernicious, too. The same thing, banks are funding third-party lenders who go out and issue 98%. One guy well, – there's a company doing 101% mortgages. You actually get money back when you buy a house. I mean, it's absolutely <laughs> crazy. Um, so, so, you know, I, th- I think it's going to be worse. Okay, so – how do we prepare for this? I mean, what do we do? The last time, 2008, 2009, can we use that as a measure, uh, even though you're, you're seeing it a magnitude worse this time around uh, when this thing comes down? Last time, immediately everything lost value. All assets, including gold and silver, everything went down initially. And then we started QE, massive amounts of QE for the first time. And then, of course, QE2, QE3, et cetera, et cetera, QE infinite. Yep. Uh, yep. And, and we have had QE infinite in, this, in essence until now. They're trying to stop it. Uh, yep. Powell would like, to, would like to put the brakes on it, but he can't quite do it. A couple of weeks ago, we did see some possible signs of a capitulation from Powell and his. Uh, do, you think he, do you think he flinched a little bit there? And do you think, how soon do you think we might? come into sort of capitulation by the Fed chairman again. How much worse does it have to get? Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, I think you have to understand that that if you if you look at the world through the, through the dollar lens, you're looking at a very distorted picture, right? What uh-huh. happened in 2008 is the dollar, there was a massive short squeeze in the dollar. And so, yes, the dollar got bid because people needed dollars. They had so much debt. And so prices in dollar terms plummeted for a bit of time. And I think that could certainly happen. I mean, it certainly will happen in the broader markets, in the debt markets. Again, it's already starting to happen, I think. Um, but if you look at the, at, the, at the world through gold terms, uh, uh, I think you get a clearer view of value. And so gold's purchasing power actually went up. I mean, don't forget that, again, if we look at, at gold uh, through the dollar view, gold got hit by 30%. Yeah. But oil went down by 80%. So, in fact, yeah. the world through the gold uh, lens, the dollar got really strong, which it did because of a short squeeze, and dollar and, and the cost of living plummeted. So you, you were actually, you were fine in gold. It, 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 not, not, again, not if you're a dollar bug, but, but yeah. if you're a, if a purchasing power you know, mm-hmm. person, then, then you were fine. And then, of course, what the Fed had to do is go liquidify the system by by doing by doing the the five trillion dollars of guarantees and then QE, and then the dollar collapsed. I.e., gold went up, but really the gold didn't go anywhere. Gold is stable, right? What happens is the dollar went down, and they did that intention because only with a very cheap dollar could the massive debtors repay their debts. And and who is the biggest debtor on the planet? It's the federal government. So they, they and, and they can't let the federal government. Uh, uh, default. So you know, at some point, I mean, that, that, that is that is the function of the Fed is to make sure the bank system survives to fund the government. You know, as it's, it's a, a quick aside, Jay, if we have time, I I was looking at, uh, uh, yeah, as you know, I'm writing a book on on uh, history of credit bubbles, and right, I discovered, you know, where where in the Constitution does it say that the government has the, the federal government has the power to charge our banks? And the answer is it doesn't say it. The, yeah. the, the power is not there. So how can they do it? Well, they do it because the original argument in that Hamilton gave, and that was repeated in Marbury uh, in, in Maryland versus uh, in, in the Second American of the United States and then again in mm-hmm. in the 1860s was that it's an incidental power to raising taxes and funding the military, i.e. the only legal basis 
for the banking laws in this country is because the banks create a market for treasury bonds to fund the government. That's it. That, yeah. that, that, that's their legal function. The other stuff they do is an aside, but that, that's, that's why they're allowed to exist and do what they do. So the point is that there's no chance that the Fed is going to allow the banks to crater to a point where the federal government can't fund itself. And so you know they're going to come in and print the money, which you don't know is when, right? I mean, you're, you're mm-hmm. right. You know, Powell was saying in early October, hey, we're, we're, the rates are a long way from neutral. We can do lots more increases. And then a, m- a month later, the market started attacking. He said, oh, my goodness, no, we're, we're right up there. We're right near the neutral rate. Uh, and, and I, yeah, I think at some point the markets will keep going down and Powell will have to do an embarrassing about face and, and start printing the money again. The question is when? Uh, or will he try to sneak in one more rate increase to show he's in charge? I, I don't know the answer to that, but what, what I do suspect is that the longer he waits to react, the worse it'll be because defaults create cross defaults. Right? I default to you, you default to your lenders. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. The longer you let that go, the more effort you need, the more you get a print to stop it. And so the, the longer he delays uh, 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 you know, pr- doing QE again, printing money, I think the worse it's going to be. But, but think about how intellectually humiliating that's going to be for all the authorities. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I suspect that we have you know, quite a bit of room to fall before the Fed will face the intellectual mm-hmm. humiliation mm-hmm. of having to do an about face and start printing money. All right. Well, Dan, what I wanted to find out from you is what your thoughts are about the gold markets and the gold share markets this year. Uh, I guess in part, uh, again, it's one of timing. Alistair McLeod, who's a, a frequent guest on this show, was quite convinced that the thing would start coming unraveled this year before the end of this year is over. And I think we're seeing some signs of that. The equities are starting to show uh, somewhere. And there's, I think, some trouble, big trouble in the debt markets already, especially in the more leveraged markets, as you're talking about. But um, is it? are we going to see a turnaround in the gold share markets this year, 2019? I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you I, hope what, so. It, I certainly hope so. But I, I also think so. I mean, I, I, and the reason is because what I've noticed is that whenever you see really big uh, down days in the S&P 500, gold gets bid. Maybe it doesn't go up a lot, but it doesn't yeah. go down. I mean, right. it sort of sits there. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, the big question has been, well, is it going to be like, as you point out, 2008, where in the first crisis gold gets gets hit, and then in dollar terms, and then and then uh, shoots higher when they react, or does it go straight higher? And and I've been ooching towards the latter only because back in 2008, you had lots of momentum players who were levered long in the gold market, in the gold trade, and in the gold companies. And when they got redemptions of margin calls, they had to dump what they had to dump. Uh, and and you don't see that in the market. Gold's been in a downtrend. Uh, uh, for so long, I think if anything that the managed money short gold. So when they get margin calls, they go buy it. So I, I don't think gold it happens. It could happen. I mean, you could see metal discorded from other places like China and India, where people take out debts and loans uh, in gold terms and have to dump physical in the market. But I, I don't, I don't think so. I think that gold will go up. I don't know. I think it will. Uh, and, and of course, then at that point, the the miners will 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 participate. I mean, I think. Well, I, I hope. I think. That this this year of, of pain. I mean, we've all been. It's very been a very painful year. Absolutely, it's setting us up for a price at which these things can really, really run. And that's also what happened in 2009. Right, these things went down 90 percent. Some of them, uh, they hit rock bottom, and then they just took off. And and I, I think I hope we're 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 nearing a, a, a similar point. I don't know that, and so I don't. I yeah. mean, I don't use financial leverage because I could be wrong about that. I mean, sure. Go first, I don't want to get margin call and then be out of the trade when it takes off. Yeah. I'm, I'm convinced it's going to go a lot higher uh, when when the Fed reacts, uh, and I think it'll go before that, but I don't know that, and so I, I you know I, I make sure I'm able to withstand you know whatever happens, so I can be around for that outcome. Daniel, just uh, one one last question because we are basically out of time here. What about um, 
What kind of gold mining companies do you like to invest in in this market? I mean, we're at the bottom. I'm looking at a lot of these companies that I they have millions of ounces in the ground in some cases, selling for pennies. The stocks That's are just amazing. absolutely, absolutely decimated. Nobody wants them. Nobody understands gold as, as Austrians do, of course, and right. that may be one of the reasons. that The market realities are going to have to hit people upside the head, I think, before they'll start to look at these things. Yeah. But in this kind of environment, um, do you take a different position than you might if you thought we were closer to the end of a gold bull market? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I, I think what will happen is what usually happens is when gold takes off, the producers see – benefits to cash flow immediately. And so their stocks are usually pretty tied in terms of timing with, with the gold itself. And and the little juniors, they take longer because they have value, uh, not because the gold, you, you can't produce the gold, you can't produce cash flow, but it has an asset. And so at some point you get capital flowing in from the, from the cash producing companies to, to acquire these things and fund uh-huh. them. And don't forget that the Average mine life, mine reserves of the majors has shrunk from 11 years to eight years over the past five years because they haven't had enough cash flow to reinvest in their own in their own businesses. And so when they get cash flow again, they're going to need to go out and do that and and, and acquire some of these things. So I, I think there'll be a scramble uh, for these little tiny juniors that you're talking about. I don't think it happens immediately, uh, but I think it does happen. And when it happens, as you know, these things can really go like Roman candles because they're so cheap right now. Uh, and the key thing is finding companies that aren't going to blow out their share structure while you're waiting for that to happen. The most the juniors. I agree with you. Boy, the dilution factor is is the killer for the juniors, and yep. so of course that's what you focus on uh, in your fund and and what I try to do in my newsletter and on this radio show as well. Dan, I want to thank you so much for your wisdom, for sharing your insights with us, and uh, I wish you a very merry Christmas and a happy new year. And uh, I hope to talk to you again sometime next year, perhaps early. Thanks. Hopefully. Thanks. All Jay. right, well, folks. That is all the time we have uh, for this week. Until talk to you again on January eighth, two thousand nineteen. Let me wish all of you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Often referred to as one of the best teams in junior gold exploration, having discovered a 5 million ounce gold mine and sold a second company amidst discovery, the management behind Orin Resources now has a world-class exploration portfolio within Canada and Peru. Projects that give the company one of the largest direct pipelines for major discoveries globally, with one of the deepest technical teams to explore them. Entering into its third year of aggressive pursuit, Orin is expecting results from two of their major projects throughout the rest of this year. For the latest, head to orinresources.com and subscribe.